among us. Um, God, we are weak and you are strong. And I pray, Lord, that we would be unafraid uh, to stand in our weakness and know our need for you. Uh, That we would be unafraid to acknowledge the fact that we are desperately in need of your grace and desperately in need of your mercy. And Lord God, you are the God who has come, not just so that we can be forgiven for our sins, but so that we can live. I pray for us that we would live. And as we live in the glory of your gospel, we would be light in the darkness here in Seattle. Jesus, we love you so much. We pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. So we are approaching Christmas. We continue to celebrate Advent. Uh, It's important that we remember that Advent is a word that doesn't just mean Christmas, right? It's a word that means arrival. Uh, And the reason we celebrate Advent and even the reason we do it is because we want our hearts to be prepared to celebrate the reality that, that God arrived in the person of Jesus, Uh, that Jesus was born uh, a baby and dwelt among us. And this is something we're celebrating. Uh, And honestly, we live in a time and a place where we are not at home with these significant realities as a society. It's it's 24-hour stores, and you're in line for the Cabbage Patch doll, and you forget that the fact that you're even in line for the Cabbage Patch doll, and if you weren't born in 1981, you don't know what I'm talking about, but you forget that why we're actually doing any of it. And part of the reason we even slow down and take a minute to consider this reality is so that when we're in the middle of the the day-to-day of of all the Christmas stuff, we remember that it's actually Jesus we're celebrating. And not only that, but we celebrate two Advents. Not just the first one, but the second one. He arrived once and he's going to arrive again. And he's going to put the world back the way it's supposed to be. And that's why we celebrate. And, and, and with that same anticipation that we're anticipating the 25th, I don't know what Christmas looks like for you, but I'm hoping mine is awesome. We want to have our hearts ready for Jesus who's coming back to wipe this world clean and to put things the way they ought to be. Um, and so as we dig into the text, we need to remember that. Um, not only that, but my hope is that we, as we continue to look at Mary's song, would have a subversive Christmas. Now, I mentioned this last week. A subversive Christmas is not just the one where we look at all the things the world does with Christmas and throw rocks at those things, but that we would see Jesus for who He is. And that we would so celebrate His reality that the Christmas that we as Anchor Church have is one of such great celebration and great joy that it stands in contrast to everything else. That everyone would know the reason why we're partying is because of God. The reason why we're celebrating is because of Jesus. And that we would have, there would be such a content to that celebration that we just have great joy. And that it, that it would be a contrast to, to everything else. So here we go, digging into Mary's song. I'm going to read the text for us. Am I standing in the wrong place? There we go. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 50. Luke chapter 1. We are in verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich... He has sent away empty. So this is in the middle of Mary's song as she's celebrating the reality that she gets to be Jesus' mama and and that God is doing big things in her day. Uh, Now, what's really important for us as we approach this part of the text, we need to understand that everything in our society actually hardwires us to completely miss what's happening here. And completely... uh, it jacks everything up and makes it to where we can't actually hear what we need to hear. 
Uh, and, and the reason I say this is because this is the song of someone who's understanding that they come to God empty-handed and weak, and that God is doing massive, huge things through Jesus coming to save people. Right? Mary understands she's needy. And we can even look at it, oh, look how needy Mary is. Look how empty-handed Mary is. Uh, but we... Um, we are conditioned to build ourselves around uh, our, our, own, our own thing that shows how independent, uh, how strong, how great we are, right? Your job, if you go in for a job interview, it's not about how weak you are. It's, you don't highlight your weak points. You highlight your strong points. Um, uh, we, we spend our lives building. We, we, we lean into our strengths, not our weakness. Uh, we try and present ourselves as the, the prettiest, most handsome, strongest, best, fastest. We try and be the best in our field or the best in our hobbies or the best in anything we do. Or even, and I think this is maybe a little indicative of Seattle, we can have a punk rock kind of independence. We can have a punk rock strength where we just really spend most of our time showing how we don't, we're so strong we don't need any of those other things or the things that society has. We don't need the American dream or we don't need uh, to have friends or we don't need to have a, a house. My, my apartment is just fine and I'm better than everybody else who owns a house or whatever it is, but whatever we do, we're, we're conditioned to stand in our strength and to tell the story uh, to ourselves about how strong we are, but the reality of the gospel is that it's for people who have empty hands. The reality of the gospel, it's not people who need Jesus aren't the people who have it all figured out, and in fact, the reality is none of us have it figured out. And for a moment, as we look at this text, if we're going to hear it, we don't come to it as people who have it all figured out. We come to people knowing uh, that it's not like Mary's not got it fit, or Mary's like you know this needy seventh grade girl who needs some help, but that you are just the same as she is. That we all have the same condition. We all have a massive need, and that coming to the gospel isn't God. I've got it all figured. I don't really need you. Coming to the gospel is God. I don't have anything figured out. Jesus, I need you, and God condescending to us and meeting us where we're at and saving us from ourselves. And the only way we can do that is to actually stand in the gospel and say, yeah, I, I don't have it figured out. And no, I don't have it all together. And, and yeah, I, I stayed up all night and didn't sleep. And then showed up to a Christmas party at a church called Anchor Church, and I was wearing an Anchor sweater. And when I, when I bought the sweater, I knew never, ever wear the sweater to a church thing because then everyone's going to say, oh, is that the church's sweater? Or, oh, I see you wore an Anchor sweater for church, and you're at the Christmas party. And, every, and you're, you're thinking, oh, I had that conversation with him last night. Everybody looks at you and says, oh, did you get that for the church? No, it's for a rap band. Well, you, oh, it's the theme for the church. You got the church sweater. It was, and I realized, man, I am really, really tired. And my Christmas tree fell down twice this season. It fell down last week and this week. And so the point is not to come to the Christmas party. And, and I think we can do this, honestly, as Christian folk. We can come and think our job is to show people how together we have it, how much we've got our stuff figured out, how much we've got our sin nailed down, our Bible reading plan, because the first of the year is coming, you've got to have your Bible reading plan nailed down. Right? I've got my devotional time nailed down. I've got my transformational program nailed down. I've got everything figured out and everything going on when in fact the gospel is for people who come and say, I don't have anything figured out and what I need in life is Jesus. What I need in life is the gospel. What I need in life is life and that life only comes when I come to him with empty hands. So we want to stand with Mary as empty-handed people and see what God's got for us today because if we come to this with arrogance or pride and don't think we need something right now, you're not going to hear any of this as good news. So let's go ahead and dig on in. So, verse 50. And his mercy, 
is for those who fear him. This word is interesting, fear. Right? Um, when the Bible talks about fear, uh, it talks about the awe of standing in the presence of a glorious and wonderful, massive God. I mean, God didn't just make planet Earth, and he didn't just make Seattle. He made the cosmos. And Jesus holds up the universe by the word of his power. He's controlling the temperature at the bottom of the sea where there are no submarines right now. Why? Because he's glorious. Apparently, it's really fun when your kids start doing science because then you remember stuff that you heard in middle school and then, or elementary school and then you forgot. Apparently, like the, the earth's really hot in the middle and it's like molten something. I don't know. The sun, temperature's beyond compare. Uh, you can't survive on Mercury or Jupiter. One because they're hot, one because they're cold. Mercury's flying around the sun, right? I don't think about this every day. And God's hand is holding it up. He is glorious. He's holy. All right, no wrong. All light, no dark. All the time. And when we stand and look at who he is, we should be in awe. And that awe even produces, with the Bible, fear. Whoa, giant, huge God. Uh, and in fact, the thing, is that, the thing is that when we see who he is, we begin to understand how, how we are and who we are, and that we are so tiny and so insignificant. But when you understand how huge he is and how small you are, and when promises are made, like, and he has every hair on your head counted, glorious. By the way, the point of that is that you would know that you're loved, but not that you would think you're the center of the universe. Are we clear there? It's, it's a both and, Right? By saying that you're not the center of the universe doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It just means he's the center of the universe and not you. But when we understand who God is and who we are, we actually understand reality for just a moment. And in fact, true humility is seeing who God is and who we are in light of the reality that God came to earth as a man named Jesus Christ to save us from ourselves and to make us his. We belong to that God, the God who keeps Mercury spinning around super fast. I don't know how long a day it is, on Mercury, but it's something like, it's something somewhere between 30 seconds and three days or some other number that I'm making up, but it's fast. It's fast. Those who fear him, those who see him for who he is, right? Because you don't get to stand and see who he is and know that you, you, in that moment as you do it, you understand you bring nothing to the table, right? He did not pick you for your Parcheesi skills, Right, But not only did he not pick you for your, for your Parcheesi skills, that's not what keeps you on the team either. Okay? He didn't pick you because you're a good person, and the thing that keeps you in Christ is not you, it's him. We miss that. It's all gospel, it's all grace up to there. It's all grace to here. It's all grace... I will forgive you for your sins, uh, your, lawless, your sins and your lawless deeds. Uh, I, I will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. The promise of Jeremiah 31, 34. Your sin is as far as the east is from the west. We believe all those things up to the point of our conversion, and then we think the rest of it is our work to work. Okay, God, you got that stuff. Now the rest is my job. Like being saved brought us to the point where we can bring something to the table with God. His mercies are new every day. I have a need for him daily, right? Mary's not just singing the song because she knows she's in need. She's singing the song because she knows the story of the Bible and she knows the universe is in need, that all people are in need, that, that there are remnant people who actually belong to God and they are in need. And she comes needy. But hear this, needy people. 
and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. When you understand where you sit in this big cosmic scene, and you need to, and, and you hear this and you know this, his faithfulness is not fickle. How important would it be if you were trying to communicate to someone who, who didn't know what it was like to have, say, a, a safe place to live? Or, or real friendship, or real friends, or real family, how important would it be to communicate to that person that you are going nowhere? When we understand that we're kind of orphaned out in the world, how important is it for you to know that God doesn't change the way he feels about you? He loved you before you were lovely. He doesn't call you into the office three weeks later and say, well, you know, Andrew, you really screwed up this week. Uh, I was hoping this job would really work out, uh, but really we need somebody else. So just consider this your uh, two weeks, and we'll see you later. We can approach God that way. His faithfulness is not just to you in your whole life, but generation to generation. He is a faithful God. The story, the Bible, cover to cover, is the story of God's faithfulness to broken people and how God is working in the lives of broken people to bring about a new heavens and a new earth where it's put back the way it was supposed to be, all of Genesis 2 in Revelation 21. That's what she is celebrating. The signs of the time are here. God is coming to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. He's faithful to do what he said he was going to do. And this is why Peter also reminds us you might think he's slow, and you might think he's late. Do not count his slowness in human time. That's a total remix. I'm not quoting the Bible there, just for the record. You go, you're like, what is he talking about? He's not late. He's not slow. He's on time. It just turns out that thing I said about you not being at the center of the universe means that he's on his time frame, not yours. Let's keep going. He has shown strength with his arm. He has shown strength with his arm. So when I understand that I've got it together, I'm the got it together guy, right? Uh, I've got my life figured out. I've got my job figured out. You know, got some degrees on the wall or a good paying thing or this other thing. I've got it figured out. My life is on cruise control and things are good. I don't hear this as good news. I hear this as good news for Mary. And it's easy for us as North Americans living in 2013 where we sit to say, oh, that's nice for Mary. Isn't that nice that God is, is showing him her strength? But when I understand in the cosmic scale how needy and empty-handed I am, this is good news for you that he's strong and that he's great and that he's faithful. Because at the end of the day, we have built into us as, as sort of... Um, I don't know, Americans, right? We, we have self-reliance and self-dependence built into our, our lives. We're kind of John Wayne-ish, Ernest Hemingway uh, type people. When was the last time you needed help, someone offered to help you, and you said no thank you? American. That's the most American thing you can do. You totally need help. Someone totally offers to help you, and you say no thank you. I bet you did that this week. When, when you do that, what are you, what are you doing? I don't, even know what you're do I don't even know what I'm doing when I do that. I know I need the help. 
I don't have time to do it. There are not enough hours in the day. Someone's totally willing to help. And I say, no, I got it. We're self-reliant empire builders. We're trying to build our thing. And and so often when we have this approach, we just kind of like, we kind of like build our thing and then we just invite God into it. Hey God, look what I'm doing over here. Come, come bless this thing I'm doing. Let's, let's stick a Jesus bumper fish, sticker fish on the thing I'm building or the thing I'm doing and God will bless it rather than coming to God with empty hands saying, I need you, I can't do this, I don't know. I don't have enough time, I don't have enough strength, I don't have enough energy, I don't have it. I don't have it, Jesus. Excuse me. Um, when we do that, when we just kind of invite God along, Jesus becomes our buddy that's going to help us do the thing we're trying to get done. We become like Simon the sorcerer. I think it's a magician in the ESV, but sorcerer rhymes with Simon. And you're like, there's a sorcerer in the Bible? Well, if you read it, you'd find out. It's in Acts chapter 8. Simon the sorcerer sees the apostles doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what he does? He goes up to him and he tries to buy it. How much do I have to pay you to get to do that thing? How much do I have to pay you for God's strength? Because so, so often we see God's strength as the, the gimmick that's going to help us get to where we're going. It's the gimmick that's going to get us there. Uh, this is the same thing that happens to Saul in, chapter, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, what's interesting is Saul and David are both screw-up kings. I don't know if you know that. That's the story of David. David uh, is a man after God's own heart, but he's totally a screw-up. And he screws up really, 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 really big. The difference between David and his screw-up and Saul and his screw-up. I mean, if you look at Saul's screw-up in 1 Samuel 13, what Samuel does, or Saul does, is he looks around and says, oh man, Samuel's late. We have to offer a sacrifice. Everybody's starting to leave. I've got a war to get done. If we don't do the sacrifice, everyone's going to go and I'm not going to win the war, so we've got to do the sacrifice. So he makes it about the sacrifice. He makes it about the mechanism. And so he goes and he offers a sacrifice and he's not supposed to offer a sacrifice. Gets in a lot of trouble and God pretty much washes his hands with him because what does he do? He says, but we had to do it because everybody was leaving and, and Saul was, uh, uh, Samuel was late. I got a time frame here. We got to move this thing along. What does David do when he realizes he screwed up, which is one of the greatest stories ever when the prophet tells him a story. When Nathan tells him a story, he says, hey, uh, there's a guy with a sheep and took it and he gets really angry at the unjust guy who took the sheep and ate it because the sheep is like the guy's kid. And you're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Again, it's in the Bible. Read it. It's amazing. And so David gets really angry, and Nathan says, you're the man. You're the guy who did that. And what's David's response? He tears his clothes, and he's sorry to God, because what does he know in that moment? My hands are empty, and I need you, right? But this God thing, this Jesus person, isn't a mechanism, and it's not something we tack on to the end. The point of the sacrifice was that Saul was just tacking it on to be part of their, like, their, their rally cry, it's the high school rally cry time. Let's go. We've got to do a sacrifice. We're going to have a war. What he missed was that it's God who wins the wars. Uh, the approach we need to have when we're empty-handed, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, uh, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 under Jehoshaphat, which isn't just a fill-in for a cuss word, but was a king. Uh, long story short, uh, the king gets news that there are armies that are going to come and destroy everything, and they've got no hope at all. And so what is his response? Uh, we'll start in... Uh, let's start in his prayer in 6. 
Uh, no, that starts with an and. Let's start in seven. Um, Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of the land that was before your people Israel and give it to them forever? So he's leaning on God's strength, the strength of his arm that we see there, to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Hey, God, remember your faithful generation to generation? Sound like anybody else we know? And they have lived... Uh, in it and have built uh, for you, a, uh, we have lived in and built sanctuary for you and for your name. Uh, let's skip down to 12. Uh, our God will not execute judgment. No, let's go right there. For we are powerless. There's my thing. What does he say? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. As Americans, our response to being in a fix is to fix the fix we find ourselves in. I've got a problem. I need to solve, I need to solve it. I need to have a solution. What is their solution to their impossible problem? To their, understand, impossible problem. It's Christmas. You're going to be stuck playing Risk with one of your nephews or somebody because that and Monopoly are the only games in the closet, and Monopoly takes forever, and you get playing Risk, and you're like, oh, that Risk takes forever. And at some point in time, at the end, someone's got all the countries and all the armies, and you're stuck in New Zealand, and then they crush you. <laughs> That's where they're at. That's where they're at. Like a 30 girl, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So when you get to the closet, it will be dusty. You're gonna grab you're gonna want to grab battleship because it's quick. But you're gonna want to grab risk so you can understand my sermon illustration. <laughs> and you'll be in three hours full of turkey. You're like, oh, that's what he was talking about. And then your nephew will crush you in New Zealand. And you're like, oh, second chronicles. <laughs> so what happens next? Meanwhile. All Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. I mean, imagine that scene, right? Everyone, the whole nation of Judah standing there with their kids and their families, and they're just saying, God, we're empty-handed. What do we do? And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jezel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benai, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, and the Levite, the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the king Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but it's God's. They're not inviting God into the fight. God's like, That's my fight. Yeah, New Zealand, no problem. Got it. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohalites and the Kohalites stood up to praise the Lord and God, the God of Israel, Israel with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tokah. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when they had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those to sing to the Lord and to praise him in holy attire 
as they went out before the army to say, give thanks to the Lord for the steadfast love, uh, his steadfast love endures forever. The most quoted Bible by the Bible, by the way. This thing it says about God here, for his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, long story short, they bring out the band, and when they go and find the, uh, the armies, they fought each other, and they all lose. So again, we're standing here not looking at it saying, oh man, that's really nice for Mary. Our God is so strong and so big and so on. You ever have your kids sing that song? Our God is so big and our God is so mighty. Nothing he can't do. Yeah, I heard that one. It's not just a kid's song. It's Christmas, right? Like a lot of us have to face the fact that we're there with our family members who've heard the gospel again and again and again and again. And you're tired of telling them, maybe even. And you've realized, my arguments aren't working. So you have two choices at that moment in time. You can realize, well, first, your, your first argument is just to stop. Now, I guess they're just not going to get it. Or you can realize that it's not that you need to construct the perfect argument or get them, uh, you know, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller one more time for Christmas. They got a stack of them. They're like, why, why do they keep sending me this book? Because <laughs> it's not the reason for God that saves. And it's not your eloquent argument that saves. It's Jesus Christ who saves sinners. So when you look at it, you're like, man, I'm going to throw up the Hail Mary. What's the Hail Mary? Uh, Jesus, football, it's, it's football reference, not a, uh, not a liturgical reference, by the way. <laughs> just, just so we're clear. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the might, mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So, here's the reality of the world we live in. We live in a Bon Jovi world. I don't know if you know this. You listen to Bon Jovi from 1987, and it's all about how the man's taking everything down, and poor people need some help, and I need some help, and we're living on a prayer, and the good they die young. That might be Brian Adams. Ryan Adams. I always get those two confused, which is probably hard for them. But not that I confuse them, but their names are so similar. And you're like, what are, why are we talking about this? Here's the, here's the reality of it. There are wicked people who get into strong places and take over and do bad things with the power and the money that they have. And it turns out, even when they get dethroned, someone else replaces them. And even when in a generation they get dethroned, give it 100 years and somebody else is back in the same old spot. And it sucks. You know that the Bible acknowledges that this is bad news bears. It is not a good thing. And I'm not saying that we fight against injustice. We fight against injustice because we believe God. But we also know that in the sort of, not as Lion King or pagan as the Lion King is, circle of life business, the reality is, is that we need someone stronger and someone outside of ourselves to deal with that. And that God, in fact, is going to deal with those things. Uh, Mary li is living in a really horrible, horrible place under a really horrible, horrible guy named Herod. And you keep reading, you're like, yep, that's horrible. Historically, horrible. Paranoid person. So paranoid that they said uh, it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than be one of his own family, was the statement they used to say about Herod, because he didn't trust his own family. He'd do horrible things to his family. Horrible. Merry Christmas. Sorry. I will stop there. You're like, man, that's Christmas for this guy? 
I'm a really jolly guy, I promise. But the reality is this seventh grade girl, Mary, does not have the strength or the power to depose Herod. She's got nothing to deal with a guy who's over her circumstances. But the reality is there's someone bigger than, bigger than him over her circumstances, and that's God. And again and again and again, the Bible is going to restate that even when it doesn't look like God is the king, we have hope and faith that he is ruling and reigning, and he is going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So Mary's not celebrating that God is going to come in and make her life awesome by making her stuff awesome. She's celebrating the fact that he's going to build his kingdom where everything makes sense and everything is right. And the thing about this last passage here, uh, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of a humble state. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This is not a commentary on whether someone's rich or someone's poor. This is a commentary on whether or not you think you need God or not. It's using the rich as the example, because oftentimes rich people don't think they need God as much as poor people think they need God. When you are able to take money out of your bank account and there's food on the table, you are able to say, good job, you. You did it. But when you don't know where the food's coming from and you have to get down on your knees and say, Jesus, please, the kids are hungry. We need food and we don't know where it's going to come from. And somebody knocks on the door and says, hey, I've got some food for you. You say, thank you, Jesus. Your first response isn't to the person who brought the food. When you find yourself in a bind where I don't know how this is going to get taken care of, and someone picks up the phone and says, I really felt compelled to send you a check today. When you're in that spot, when you're in the, self, the spot of need and empty-handedness, yes, you say, thank you for doing that kind thing for me. Thank you for doing that. But what is our heart tuned to do first? Thank you, Jesus. Most of us get to go have lunch after this. Right? And my hope is when we say, thank you, Jesus, because you went to Dick's and you got an awesome milkshake and you got this burger and you say, thank you, Jesus. You're like, oh, man, there's a line. I preach at lunchtime, which means I'm always thinking about food. But there it is. But you're there with the food and your response should be just the same. Grace is not a, you know, we call it Grace. Praying over your food, it's, it's not a flyby. It's not a ritual. It's the acknowledgement that the food on your plate and the clothes on your back came from King Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because if I didn't have this food on my plate and this clothes on my back, I'm empty-handed. I'm empty-handed. I come to you in need. This is a commentary on self-sufficiency. And so we look again at the seventh-grade little girl who's pregnant out of wedlock, who's singing songs to God. And ask, why is she singing? Our world looks at her and thinks she's got nothing to sing about. And maybe you're in a spot right now where the world would look at you and say, you've got nothing to sing about. There are Christians all over the planet right now who have nothing to sing about who are singing Got a letter from a guy who is in, um, he's in Congo. It's one of the hard spots in Africa. 
And his, read, his letter read something like this. Um, you know, right now, uh, fortunately, the turmoil's down, so it's a little bit safer right now. And I got to eat a meal yesterday. And we're just really thankful because my, my little girl's got to eat three meals. And, uh, you know, it's really hot, so we don't have a roof on the church, and so we have to meet in the afternoon. But we got to meet in the afternoon, and it was awesome. Because he knows it's grace to him. He knows it. You could, you could feel it in, in, the, in the language. It was all positive. And, and we as Americans look at people, you have nothing to sing about. Stop it. But he believed and he knew. She's got nothing to sing about. Why is she singing? He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty because God helps people who are in need. God helps those who come to him with empty hands. Those who don't think they need God, those who don't think they need Jesus, have a lot of trouble receiving his help. Because we're just like you and me. We're just like us, right? You're standing there in need. You have a need. You can't fix it. Jesus has the answer for it. And you say, oh, no, thanks. I'm okay. You do, you do The same thing you do when your gutter breaks is the same thing we do when we reject Jesus' help. You have a need. You need him. She's singing because God helps the weak. But the, the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the very thing she's actually physiologically experiencing as a pregnant lady is that God doesn't just help the weak, that God became weak. That he entered into human history as a baby. That he came as a human being so that he could be a faithful high priest. So that everything you've got, the letter of Hebrews tells us, uh, he knew no sin but was tempted in every way to be a faithful high priest. He was made like his brothers in every respect. That means you. That means that in your need and in your help, you come to Jesus with empty hands and there's nothing you've got on him that he cannot help you with. There's nothing you've got on him that he didn't actually physically experience, actually experience in terms of your need and your emptiness. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be alone as a human being. God who was strong became weak. So in the gospel, he can relate to you with everything you've got. She's got a lot to sing about. When we don't believe this, we play Savior. When we don't believe we're empty-handed and weak and needy, we play Savior. We either play Savior in our own lives or in other people's lives. You think you've got the program or the plan to get you out of your junk. You think you've got the program or plan to get somebody else out of their junk. Right? When we don't think that we're all coming empty-handed together, Right? We try and organize redemption. We try and program transformation. We try and figure out how I can fix this person or how I can fix myself. And frankly, it is exhausting to try and fix yourself or to try and fix others. One of the single most formative, and you may have, I may, you may have heard me say this one before, but it is worth repeating. One of the single most formative moments in my life was as a community group leader. I had a friend who was in need, who was in trouble. He shares with the group. He, he comes empty-handed. He shares where he's at. He shares his struggle. And the first thing out of my mouth is, I have a book that would really help you with that. I didn't say it that way. I was trying to love him and be kind to him and be gracious to him. I've got a book. 
You know what that says? That says, I've got a way to fix you. I've, if you could just know what I know, if you could just have this information download, you'll be fixed and transformed, and it won't even be a problem anymore. He looks at me and loves me in this moment, looks at me right in the eyes and says, I don't need a book. I need someone to pray for me. He needed someone in that moment to stand with him with empty hands together saying, Jesus, we're in trouble and we need your help. The only one that can fix this is you. Help this brother, God. I can't fix him. He can't fix himself. We need you. And yeah, books are great. Books might point you to the truth, make your heart sing, but it only, it only does anything if we start with the fact that I'm coming empty-handed and hopefully this book will remind me the truth of who you are, God, and who I am. Come empty, come empty-handed. Unless I actually know how much I need him, how weak I am, I can't actually wade out into his strength. I can't actually depend on the things that I have. I can't depend on the reality that God is putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. I can't wade out into what he's doing because I'm trying to fix everything, and I'm trying to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. I'm trying to do it in my strength. I need him. I need to be part of what he's doing. I want to wait out to what he's got going on. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 16 says this. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, I love they say it to them, not to him, by the way. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, now, what's amazing about this is that that doesn't mean that we kind of turn like community group into like sin sniper party club. You know what I mean? You ever been in one of those? Those are horrible. <laughs> but I can come with empty hands. And also, as empty-handed people, we come and know, and we've been saved from our sins to life in Jesus Christ which means the Christmas party, and that it's not about me continually trying to uh, uh, deprecate myself and show how horrible I am, but that I know that as an empty-handed person, I'm a person that Jesus keeps filling, keeps, keeps putting it in my hands, keeps helping me. And it's only when we come to him in this way in prayer. We come to him in prayer, not just, hey, will you sprinkle some fairy dust on the thing I'm working on over here? That would be great. Thanks, Jesus. We come to him in the empty hand and say, I can't. I don't know how. I don't know how to follow you. I don't know where you are. It seems like you're far. I need your help. Help me, God. Please help me. He helps us. He's faithful. He's true. We come to him with empty hands. This is the only place we find forgiveness, right? Because in seeking forgiveness from others, we actually have to say we're weak. That thing I did there was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. If I'm living with that, uh, that, that protective American John Hemingway, uh, Ernest Hemingway, that's good. I, I mixed John Wayne and Ernest Hemingway, and I put them together. So I'll just say Hemingway. So when I'm living like Hemingway, I, I, I didn't do anything wrong there. Well, you're never actually going to be able to say, hey, I was, that was wrong. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. Which turns out that goes a really long way when you've sinned against somebody. That thing I did there was really, that was absolutely inappropriate. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. It goes a long way to just dissipate our failures. I'm a failure. Yeah. Welcome to the club. Not only that, but this is the only way we're going to change. Right? If you don't think you need change, God's not, you know, well, he does. Sometimes he does that, but that's kind of a different story. But typically, if we come to God thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to read this book for information rather than coming and letting this book read us. This book will change you. It will mold you. It will shape you. It will give you life, but only if you need life and transformation. The Spirit will do that. Only if you, but he, 
You need to know you need it. You need it. I need it. We all need it. That's why I came. And frankly, in here, this is salvation. This is not just a roadmap. This is not just our yoga or our meditation program to get us closer to God. This is the reality that Jesus Christ came into human history to save us from ourselves. If you don't know him, today is the day. This is not our, our war plan to get you to God. This is the reality that God came down and the good news that Jesus Christ came down to get us and there's nothing you can do to earn his love. That it's his grace and his mercy in our lives. This is Jesus. He's the savior of the world. If you don't know him, today is the day. You can't get to him. He comes down for you. He comes down for you. This is freedom. Because most of us spend most of our time pretending how not weak we are. If you believe this, next time someone's going to help you fix your gutters that you actually need help with, you don't have to put on a happy face. You don't have to, no, we're good. This is freedom. We're not pretending we're something we're not. I'm weak. He's not. Let's pray. Jesus. Paul said that when he's weak, he's strong. Help us to know how much we need you today. Help us to know how much it's your grace and mercy in our lives, how faithful and true you are, how glorious and wonderful you are, how liberated we are in the gospel. Help us to know how empty-handed we are. I'm no savior. Oh, Lord, if I thought I had to be the savior of my wife or the savior of my kids or the savior of my friends or the savior of this church, I would die. You're gracious and good. Help us to keep that in view. You came into history. We celebrate Christmas because you came to save and to put everything back the way it is supposed to be. You came to bring us redemption. And you didn't come into history because we're strong. You came into history because we're weak. Let us be weak. Let's boast in what you're doing. Help us to boast in your strength and in your glory, your mercy and your grace. And help us to realize you've done all this to give us life so we can celebrate you and in celebrating you we have joy. Jesus, we love you and praise you in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.